And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It is Sunday and uh, episode 23 of Cinema. And I'm looking today as, as again, I say all the time, cinema is not about film reviews. Um, However, I thought it was important to set some time aside to look at Dr. Sleep, uh, an interesting film that across the nation, according to the trades and everything else, is underperforming in uh, even some articles attributing to the fact that it will end up uh, posting a loss of over $30 million to Warner Brothers. And quite frankly, that's a shame because I feel that the film has done quite a bit to, in my mind at least, uh, make me appreciate the original 1980 The Shining uh, even more. For those of you who have basically been in a, a coal mine for, for a while, uh, Dr. Sleep is the sequel to Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining from 1980. And I've done a previous podcast and and also I have a cinema blog on The Shining in which I titled it, uh, All Work and No Play Makes uh, The Shining a Dull Film. And um, I've I've always been one that felt that that The Shining was was an extremely overrated motion picture. And the reason why it's it's received such a rehabilitation and free pass in the horror community is because it is definitely one of the best produced movies of the Stephen King adaptations. It's a beautiful motion picture. It is far from a bad movie. However, I've never understood why this film constantly gets labeled in the the top 25 of most terrifying motion pictures. I, I, I just simply don't get it. So while this is not a film review, it, it is about looking at the, the making of this movie and, and why it reverses what I feel is cinema. Now, for those of you just tuning into my podcast and not knowing what cinema is, C-Y-N-E-M-A, it's basically what I call the attitude of the failure to make a decent motion picture when you, when you had the means to do better. And how could The Shining, if I just said it's masterfully made and well-produced, how could it fall under the classification of cinema? And and really my, my point about that is, and I'm just going to backtrack a little bit, is that Stanley Kubrick basically took Stephen King's novel, as, as most people know, and he did a very, very thin translation of it in what Kubrick called an anti-ghost story. And I still don't know what the hell that means. Uh, basically, I, I look at The Shining as, as a deep Kubrick indulgence. The film took a year to shoot and make, which is absolutely ridiculous on, on an extremely high budget. And, and basically, uh, from all accounts in the documentaries and everything, uh, that the script is really not so much of a script as there were, there were times that the script was just literally being written on the day that they went to shoot, which Nicholson even at some point gave up trying to memorize his lines because he knew they were only going to change only hours or even minutes before the cameras rolled. So I I don't even know how that classifies as a script. If you're going to take a novel which has a huge fan base and and multi-million seller and basically turn it into what you want, then I don't understand why you would even bother to adapt that source material in the first place. And so we're going to get into a little bit of that as as we go. Like I said, I I have to tackle some plot points of of Doctor Sleep, and even though it's not a film review, and and this post is is more about the human effort that went into reversing a number of things, and that that left The Shining a sterile and an extremely cold film. So what was cinema really at work with Kubrick's masterpiece? And I and I put that in quotes, and I argued the answer was yes. 
The original 1980 film was, was really, like I said, a thin translation of King's best-selling novel, and it acted more as a personal indulgence for Kubrick than a functioning horror film. It's beautifully made, it's well done, it's well produced, it's all of those things, but terrifying? I don't think so. It has some disturbing imagery, and it is often very creepy, as, as I think we can all agree that the woman in Room 237 was an extremely disturbing image and, and scene. But I feel that it is dull, and I think it's absolutely overrated, and as I had said, a, a personal indulgence by Stanley Kubrick. So, I mean, why a sequel now? I mean, it's 30 years later. I mean, many forget. I mean, listen, think about this. Go back and look that there was an overall meh reception to the 1980 The Shining. It was not a breakout hit. It was not a slam dunk. And Warner Brothers was actually quite nervous about it. They, they chopped the epilogue off The Shining, which followed up months after, or I think even weeks after, uh, the, the events at The Overlook where Shelley Duvall and, and Danny Lloyd are in a hospital in Ullman, uh, comes to visit them and they say that Jack's body was never found and and it leaves a lot more to ponder and, and I guess that's kind of cool but overall there were there were just so many things in the movie that's like is it really happening isn't it really happening and Roger Ebert went on to write this review about you know point of view whose point of view is correct in The Shining and really Stephen King's novel made it very clear there were ghosts and and the power and the energy of the hotel possessed Jack Torrance, took advantage of his weakness and alcoholism, and it was clearly a ghost story. But it was Kubrick that went and said, no, I think I'm going to fuck with this a little bit. And is it a ghost story or isn't it? And and there are a number of things in his movie that very well confirm that this is not, not a, a an exercise in psychology, but that it really truly is a ghost story, especially on the simple fact of who let Jack Nicholson out of the pantry. It wasn't Shelley Duvall, it wasn't the little boy, and there's nobody else in that hotel. It was Grady that let him out. So ghost story confirmed, and I've, I've said that before in my, my previous podcast. So we are dealing with a ghost story, and Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep makes it very clear that we were dealing with a ghost story all along from the first film all the way through into Dr. Sleep and, and its ending events. So getting back to the original, The Shining, in, in the summer of 1980, uh, I, I remember going to see this film and it did not run at the mall. It ran at uh, what is usually was a, a second run theater, but for some reason they got The Shining, which was supposed to be the big horror film of 1980. And I had read the book. That's very different this time around than going to see Dr. Sleep, where I deliberately did not read the book for all these years, knowing that eventually they were going to turn this thing into a movie. And, and I was right. So I went in with, with fresh eyes on this instead of being tainted by the book. Now, in 1980, uh, a number of people left the movie. I remember leaving the movie myself, and I was only in, like, I think eighth grade at the time with that, or going into eighth grade. And, and I remember leaving going... I guess. I, I felt that the film was really long and a lot of other people, I heard them grumbling as they left going, yeah, it was kind of like, again, it was okay. You have Jack Nicholson, you have Shelley Duvall, and, and you'll always get the arguments that, that Shelley Duvall's acting wasn't good. I mean, if you go back and look, Duvall and Kubrick were nominated for Razzie Awards that year for Worst Director and Worst Actress. 
And Jack Nicholson, some argue, ruined the film with with his scenery chewing and his over-the-top performance, while others will deem it terrifying. Overall, I felt that we sat through basically over two hours of a lot of nothing to get to Jack Nicholson running around with an axe at the end. So the film itself needed to find an audience, and, and over time it did, and it was a financial success. It slowly made box office, but it was not the resounding hit that the studio hoped for. And instead, it took decades of pop culture rehab to reform the film into a masterpiece of of surrealistic tension that allowed fans to accost anyone who disliked it as not getting what Kubrick was going for. And I used to hear this all the time. It's slow. Well, it's supposed to be. That's how Kubrick unsettles you. It's confusing. Well, it's supposed to be. That's the genius of Kubrick to unsettle you. It's cold. It's supposed to... You get my point. Yeah, okay. It's supposed to be. This is what Kubrick was going for. I I, I guess. Look, I've always held that Kubrick made a cynical film for his own purposes. He, He discounted the millions of fans of King's book and made a movie for Stanley. And and good for him, but it really was a mixed bag for us. Stephen King played nice for the film's release, but but over the years, he's made his contempt for Kubrick's film quite clear. And, And yeah, there have been interviews where he was nicer about the film and Kubrick than others. But overall, as an author, I I think Stephen King got the shaft. I really do. Uh, He took what many have said, and King himself has said, that The Shining was a very personal film for him. He was going through his own bout of alcoholism at the time and and the disintegration of of his own family. And and he had to pull himself out of the fire. And that's really what The Shining was about. The Shining is... Truly the story of of the disintegration of the American family and and really in the end about redemption. And that is what we get in Dr. Sleep. So again, without it being a movie review, I'm arguing that The Shining was overall a very cynical and cinema kind of film where Dr. Sleep is really about redemption of that cinema and that cynicism. And that's why I enjoyed the film so much in dedicating a podcast to this motion picture. There is no accident that the poster for Dr. Sleep says Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. The last one said The Shining. Well, that was Kubrick's film, a Stanley Kubrick movie, a Stanley Kubrick film. And it really is. It has very little to do with Stephen King, the original film. Director Mike Flanagan pulled a cinematic hat trick, folks. I mean, did you ever see that episode of Seinfeld where Jerry and George try to figure out how to do the impossible girlfriend switch? And and Jerry declares George a genius and claims a victory for all heterosexual men everywhere. Flanagan did a similar switch with Dr. Sleep. I mean, not only did Mike Flanagan make a superior sequel, he bridged both films into a single world. And, And I'm telling you, man, it all works. Not only do I predict it will eventually break even and turn a profit because of its relatively modest budget, I mean, I guess if you call 50 million modest, the good reviews on the film have have set Dr. Sleep up for the same kind of pop culture rehab found by its predecessor. So why make this film over 30 years later? I mean, especially once the the original was entrenched in the annals of, of horror history. Well, the big thing that I say is, is that it ditched the cynicism. Dr. Sleep picks up not long after the events of The Shining and provides more warmth and human interaction in the few opening minutes than all of Kubrick's original plus two-hour running time. A selection of great actors to play the parts of Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and, and the boy, Danny Lloyd, 
show that care was taken to handle the departure from Kubrick's vision with respect. Look, Flanagan gave us more of the father-son bond between Danny and Dick Halloran, and we are grateful for that because it was sorely needed in the original film. Doctor Sleep is less a sequel than an extension and filling out of The Shining. While we get a whole new set of characters and a daunting new villain in Rose the Hat played with great menace by Rebecca Ferguson, the Overlook still lords over everything. It is still the central villain to this story as it was in the original. There was unfinished business at the end of The Shining and Flanagan closes out the rooms. Ewan McGregor plays a tormented soul in Danny Torrance, and yet there is a slight shadow of his father in there. The casting was absolutely brilliant in this film. And I'm going to try to avoid as many spoilers as possible because Flanagan provides so many genuine moments and surprises in, in his movie. There are surprises, twists, and yet it's all on a familiar road, folks. He went back and added new coats of paint to old rooms that looked good at first glance, but didn't hold up so well under scrutiny. So let's take a look at, at how Mike Flanagan did this. That's the whole point of this podcast. The original The Shining was described by Stephen King as a beautiful Cadillac without an engine. And Flanagan is reported to have gone back to King, who at first was not so sure Flanagan was the director for the job. The other Stephen, I, I put that in quotes, Spielberg, meaning Steven Spielberg, memorialized uh, Stephen King's contempt for the Kubrick film in, in Ready Player One, if you remember, uh, in that scene about uh, the, the author hating, the creator hating his, his work. And Flanagan was was coming off of uh, Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House, I believe, but King still remained unconvinced. However, if you watch the last 15 minutes of Dr. Sleep, and this is a big spoiler, you see how Flanagan and King came to an understanding, and King finally got what the 1998 miniseries of The Shining failed to deliver, absolution and closure. So do not listen any further ahead. From here on out, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want any spoilers, because I'm going to be talking about some stuff that's going to give away some key elements to support my, my statement here for this podcast. The entire ending of Dr. Sleep is the ending of Stephen King's novel of The Shining. The wonderful Kylie Curran, who plays Abra, the little girl, stands in for a young Danny Torrance and facing the hotel's malevolence. At the end of King's novel, the energy of the Overlook took over Jack Torrance, who then pursues his son with a polo mallet, not an axe, to bash his fucking brains in. Right the fuck in. In a touching moment, young Danny appealed to his father in the book, who still existed somewhere in his father's body, buying him time to escape as Jack came to the surface and fought off the hotel long enough for his boy to flee. That's the ending of Stephen King's novel. In Dr. Sleep, the same exact scene plays out, except Abra stands in for a young Danny Torrance, and she faces a now possessed adult Dan Torrance, who manages to fight the hotel, get Abra free, and destroy the Overlook for good. It's the exact same ending of King's original novel. I have not read the novel Dr. Sleep, but I do know the ending. I went and checked. And King sacrificed the entire ending of his new novel, Dr. Sleep, to go back and fix the error that was done in the original film. In doing this, Flanagan gives us the warmth we needed and craved from Kubrick's original film. 
I mean, in that movie, my God, couldn't there have been at least one moment where it seemed Jack didn't hate his kid or wife? I mean, especially his kid. The guy is pissed off from the first time we see him, and, and he's a complete asshole to his son throughout the entire movie. Kubrick was as cold and indifferent to us as Jack was with Danny. He, he's an abusive, emotionally detached father, and his film reflected that. As in the original novel, what Kubrick forgot, Flanagan remembered. You know, Kubrick was kind of the human form of the Overlook while making that movie. I mean, he was kind of like the Overlook in the way of, of an icon, a monolithic figure that held contempt for people, tortured souls. I mean, read about how Stanley and Shelley got along on that set, where some argue it was mental cruelty what he inflicted upon her. And he seemed to make a love letter to the Overlook more than a family tragedy. I mean, is Stanley Kubrick really the Overlook? It's kind of an interesting thing to consider. Flanagan went back and, and made the story about the people and their relationships. He, he focused on their fears and their hopes and their love. He knew to keep the overlook as the precipice, the giant thing that sits up in those mountains like Frankenstein's castle looking over the scared villagers below. And you know, there is a great shot of something akin to that. And that's when uh, Danny, Ewan McGregor, is pumping gas at a gas station down below in the valley. And he happens to look up and there is the overlook, all dark, looking like the empty Frankenstein's castle that you used to see in those old Universal movies. It, it's a great moment. It sits up there dark and waiting. And what walks its halls? Walks alone. And that's where Flanagan shines. Months ago, after seeing the first trailer, I had hoped that this new film might fill in some things that left me wanting in the original film. And I don't need things spoon-fed to me. Look, I did a podcast on, on spoon-feeding your horror, but I, I, I don't want everything explained either. I mean, The Overlook should maintain some of its secrets, but Kubrick's telling of its story was almost contemptuous of its audience. It was like he said, you know, fuck you to everyone who read the book. I'm not giving you dick. Go stumble around the maze. That's that's what it seemed like to me. Kubrick made a movie for Kubrick. He did not make it for fans of the book. And in my argument, he really didn't make it for, for horror fans. Flanagan instead takes the good bones of Kubrick's film, and it has them. And if you go back and look at my piece on my cinema blog, or even listen to uh, my, my podcast on The Shining, uh, I, I give credit where credit is due. But Flanagan's film packs on the layers. I mean, the strongest aspect of the original Kubrick film was that he made the Overlook a foreboding entity. That hotel was alive. That is, I'm telling you, man, he made that building evil. I felt that the Overlook really was a living, breathing thing. Its doors, its windows, lights. It was Shirley Jackson's Hill House with balls. And Flanagan definitely knows his way around there. You have a director who goes back and flushes out the original characters in, in this new film. We love Dick Halloran even more. And Danny's mother takes on death Kubrick denied her in his film. And Flanagan reversed the cold cynicism of the first film and gave us not what was needed, but what was deserved. He went back to King, not just asking the author's blessing, but took his input and seems to me collaborated to find a proper balanced compromise. This is something Kubrick did not do. Flanagan also does something else with the casting of new actors to replace the iconic originals. He gave them so much more depth, and, and we don't care. 
Look, when I saw Hannibal, remember the sequel to The Silence of the Lambs? I was lost in like the first few minutes. I, I, I had checked out because... Julianne Moore was just no replacement for Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling. All, all I could think was, who is that woman up on the screen who isn't Jodie Foster? And this could have been a problem with Dr. Sleep, but, but it isn't. The temptation, I'm sure, was there to use CGI to recreate the original actors or de-age them. I mean, you could have brought Jack Nicholson back. I, I know he's firmly retired, but who knows? They could have thrown some money at him to come back. Or, or most of all, just do a Peter Cushing from Rogue One and get another actor to play the body and CGI Jack's face on. Look at these deep fake videos. Well, hell, they, they put Jim Carrey on Jack Nicholson's face for that deep fake video on YouTube of The Shining. So you could have just done that. I'm sure the temptation was there. And and I don't know the legalities behind all of that either, you know, with, with using somebody's image. And, and I've talked about this before. Hollywood better start catching up on that. And a lot of celebrities better start locking down their likenesses. But there, there had to be a chance to recreate those iconic faces of Nicholson, Duvall, and Crothers. And it really just had to be tempting. And I'm glad they didn't do it. They brought in three new actors and, and even the little boy who plays Danny was was really good. And and I got to tell you, the, the woman who did Shelley Duvall did a really, really nice job. But it, it was uh, Carl Lumley's uh, Dick Halloran. He, he more than just stood in for Scatman Crothers. I mean, he really brought some heart and depth. And, and quite frankly, we didn't miss a beat. Yes, we know it's not Scatman Crothers. But I'm telling you, if they had used that deep fake technology to recreate the faces or use the de-aging technology that they've been using for some time. I mean, they used it in a red dragon on Anthony Hopkins. I would have been sitting there more looking at the technology than I would have been appreciating the actor's performance. So I think it was a great move that they brought in new people, including Henry Thomas to step in for Jack Nicholson in Dr. Sleep. We have a new kid who can shine and, and this one seeks out Danny and we have these villains that feed on children who shine. They are no different than the predator that is the Overlook. And it is here where the world's bridge as Flanagan allows Halloran to explain what we needed to know about the Overlook. That, that's what's so important. We, we got a piece of that. We got a sample of that in the original The Shining. And just when it was getting good, they cut away from it. Halloran knows the dark and sordid history of, of the Overlook. And there was so much more to tell. That hotel had so much of its story left to tell. And Halloran is the best storyteller for it. But they never really gave us that. And the ending of the original film shows as Jack Torrance became that part of the picture in, in 1921. Remember that? I think it was a July 4th ball in 1921. And that confirmed that, you know, he had always been the caretaker. But it really didn't tell us much. I mean... Did the hotel absorb him? Was was he reincarnated? What, what was the Jack that we saw in this movie? Was the Jack in the picture the original Jack? And what we see is Jack Torrance is his reincarnation. We don't know. And, and you know what? That's okay that we don't know. We don't need it fully explained. But in Dr. Sleep, we really do get something even cool that builds on it. It's not so much an explanation, but a building on our own supposition. And that is the Overlook is, is a supernatural power station. It generates energy that, that can take the form of our fears. It is a conscious, living thing, and Flanagan doesn't play coy. We have a new Lloyd the bartender who looks awfully similar to Danny's father, yet he insists his name is Lloyd, just like the name of the cultured man serving Jack Nicholson drinks in the original film. 
Seems the Overlook makes a Lloyd to dig deep into its victims. Lloyd is what we fear. So is it much of a stretch to think that maybe Jack Torrance's Lloyd was his own father or some figure that tormented Jack Torrance in the original film from Jack's past? I mean, that's pretty cool. Flanagan explains some things without being ham-fisted. The Overlook is, is like some evil holodeck, and it will create whatever characters it needs to feed. A monster like this requires great energy, and this is something Danny understands, which is why he brings himself and Abra back to it. The goal is to tempt it with food and trick it because of its appetite. And you know what? That's my spin. And it's a hell of a lot better than Kubrick shrugging and saying he made an anti-ghost story, whatever the hell that is. Flanagan makes it clear the ghosts were and are real and they're starving. In Flanagan's movie, we have a whole new group of people that have been around a long time and, and they were out there feeding off the steam of, of those who shine. They are as evil as the Overlook and yet they never found that hotel. But we get the feeling they were always on a collision course with it. Why didn't they find it? Because of Danny. He suppressed his shine. He buried it deep to the point where like a cancer, it started to eat away at him, turning him into the alcoholic that his father once was. Because of this, the gang of vampiric gypsies known as the True Knot has wandered always on the periphery of, of two of the most powerful steam generators, Danny Torrance and The Overlook. They were out there during the events of the first film, and that is just so cool to know. They helped to fill in some of the gaps that left us saying, I guess, by the time the original film ended. The True Knot builds onto the world of The Shining, fulfilling Dick Halloran's original statements that there are more out there who shine. It's a whole world out there, and suddenly The Shining universe is cohesive and means something instead of a random story about random people randomly put into an anti-ghost story. While Kubrick pushed us away, Flanagan invites us in to sit by the fire. Dan Torrance is The True Knot's blind spot, and he tricks his lifelong tormentor, The Overlook, into being his unwitting accomplice, and that is genius. Dr. Sleep was rewarded for this inventiveness, care, and quality with a less than expected opening in, in recent labels of it being a bomb. The usual suspects trotted out to say the problem was an audience unfamiliar with the source material, the original film, or, or even Stephen King himself. One argument said that the original 1980 film was released at arguably the peak of King's popularity. And now there is a whole generation out there who have no idea who Stephen King is. I, I, I don't understand exactly what that means. So what? We also now have access to digital resources, which let us catch up pretty quickly. I mean, all you got to do is watch the original film, right? Do a Wikipedia search on Stephen King to know that he was the shit in the 1980s and in even the early 1990s. So I, I don't know if that argument really holds a lot of water. It's a different world now, much like it was for Dan Torrance. I have steadfastly stated, whether on the Howard Stern Show or in interviews, that, that the original The Shining is a dull, plotting, and cynical film that got a lot of free horror passes. I, I, like I said, I still stand by it. And it took decades to turn it from a film that was just okay to a masterpiece of terror. Stern himself once called it a terrifying film, and I got to disagree with him. I, I don't think it is. Not by a long shot. 
And Flanagan, he didn't go for cheap scares or to terrify. Instead, he gave us a film that gives us terror through the evolution of its characters. I'm telling you right now, man, the killing of that baseball boy in Dr. Sleep is far more horrifying than all two plus hours of Kubrick's film. And you know why? Because that shit really happens. The number one thing that screws up a sequel is reverence. And Mike Flanagan didn't try to emulate or revere The Shining. Instead, he quietly fixed what was wrong without disparaging it and alienating its hardcore fans. While there are plenty of tributes to the original film and some recreations of key scenes, they stand out on their own in a whole new film that says to its audience, enjoy, instead of fuck off. Flanagan also gives us a film with some hope. We go on is the theme. We shine on. We are energy. And the Overlook feeds and generates it. Rose the Hat and her supernatural Manson family feed off of it. While we die, we don't end. Dick Halloran makes this clear, and the film's final moments actually give us something. This is a film that should not take 30 years to find success or to break even. King is right to stand up for it. He has in recent news articles. Flanagan gave an imaginative sequel that allowed us to go back and pick up some pieces to form a whole new world while fleshing out that old one. And that is not an easy feat in a day of, of remakes and reboots and bullshit reimaginings. A shame Dr. Sleep is not performing because there are other worlds out there to build upon. The Overlook still has its stories behind each of those rooms, and I fear now we may never get to see them. So I'll end by saying that I appreciate the original The Shining far more after seeing Dr. Sleep. I'm going to go back and watch The Shining with all that Flanagan gave me in his film. And I look forward to seeing the new edition blended into the original structure. Thanks for listening, everyone. This is Harrison Smith for Cinema, and I'm wishing you all a great week to come. Thank you. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison. <laughs>